Um, my name is Ria. I have had a spiritual experience um, by working these steps as they're laid out in the big book with the help of a loving God and many awesome sponsors and fellows. And I invited, if I may, I invited Rayanne today. I've known Rayanne for a long time, and she is really one of my people who are walking the path with me, but sort of like a few steps ahead. So I'll call and be like, wait up, wait up. Tell me how you got up there. And we also, as Kim said, we're sort of separated at birth. And I'll be honest, I'm going to tell, I never told you this. When I first met Rayanne, I didn't like her because I was totally jealous of her because she had this like big presence. And so I was like, wow, Rhea, you've got some step work to do about that. And, and then we started talking and I was like, oh, wait, I love you because you're just like me. And, uh, but it's just, it's one of those things. It was one of those great lessons of like, when I don't like something about somebody else, clearly it's a reflection of me. And Perfect. in that... In that it was, I, the fear that came up was there's not enough for both of us when really there's more than enough for everyone. So um, yeah. anyway, why don't you introduce I'm yourself. I'm Rayanne. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hi, Rayanne. And I too have had a spiritual experience through these steps, many sponsees, sponsors, and um, amazing women like Rhea. I, I remember the day we met and the amount of presence, being present, to this moment is what I remembered about her. And the fact she was a writer made me so happy because I love language. And the book that we're working out of, the language was so specific, right? The words, they mean exactly what they say. We live in a time, right, where um, everything's either uh, it's horrifying or it's awesome, right? And we're talking about lunch. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we're not, we're not in the moment of the beauty of you know a true moment with my mom right my mother lives with us and to be present to her in her fear of being older and my frustration with her whatever I think is wrong with her in the moment right because sometimes I'm still 12 um, but the opportunity to be here with you and thank you for allowing you know a drunk to come in and share her experience because I know as Rhea was very clear that this is a room um, working the spiritual program and working out of this book, which changed the lives of millions um, and continues to do so every day. So thanks. Thank you. Um, we are here today to talk about steps four through seven. So we split up the steps. So we're going to jump back and forth, but I'm sure we'll jump in and out <laughs> at, as we go along. So I'm going to start um, with step four. So if you turn to page 63, um, it's the last paragraph at the bottom of the page. And I'm going to read one word. It says next. Well, the word <laughs> next is indicative of something, isn't it? Well, that means that something happened before <laughs> next in order for us to be doing something next. So I'm very quickly going to run through steps one through three, which bring us to step four. Because step four in a vacuum, it doesn't really make any sense. So step one, our coming to, we, we admitted that our lives were unmanageable, dash. I'm sorry, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, food, etc. dash, that our lives had become unmanageable. For most of my life, I thought that only the first half of that sentence applied to me. I didn't know that the second half was related to the first and that my unmanageable life was something that started with me, which I medicated with food. The story I told myself was that I was fat, and if I wasn't fat anymore, everything would be fine and my whole life would be manageable. Um, it took me a long time, even after I got abstinent, to figure that one out. Step two, we came to believe that a power than ourselves could um, 
restore us to sanity. So um, we read recently in the book, and of course the phrase is escaping me right now, that, oh yeah, um, lack of power, that was our dilemma. So we know that if we are powerless over something, we need something that has more power than us to change that. I, for most of my life, I knew I had a problem with food, but I thought it was my job to fix it. Um, and it was only until I realized that I couldn't fix it that I was free to let in a power that was greater than me to do it. Now, three, we turned our will and our lives over to that power. So I, um, and that prayer that we say is right before this on page 63, if you hop up a couple of um, paragraphs. And the prayer's right here. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always, which is how you say it if you're the micro machines guy. <laughs> um, now, ordinarily, you can take a little more time with this. But um, the idea here is that we've turned our will and our lives over to whatever power that is that we've recognized as more powerful than us to solve our problem. Now, we've, they talk about our real problem back on page 52. Um, so if you'll flip back with me mm. for a second. Um, this is in the middle of We Agnostics. It's the middle paragraph. It begins with, we had to ask ourselves why. So it talks here about... We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. So nowhere in there did it say our human problem was that we drank too much. Our human problem were all of these things that existed whether we were drinking or not. And often we drank because we had these problems. We didn't know how to deal with these problems, so we drank or we ate or we shopped or we did whatever. It doesn't matter what our drug of choice is. In this room, most of us identify as compulsive overeaters. It, it doesn't matter what it is. These, this is our problem. We are our problem. But we've been using whatever substance, in this case food, to medicate that problem. Once we recognize that, we need something more than just not eating anymore to fix that problem. I don't know about you, but there were times where I would resolve to say, I'm going to be a good person because I knew I was a really shitty person. So I'm going to be a really good person. And like I made it to like 9 a.m. when I interacted with the first human being I came across. <laughs> like I, I had and it says, you know, we, uh, something about we don't have the willpower even to change ourselves. And it's true. Um, because I tried. And for me, my experience very quickly was that I got abstinent um, with a group of women who I will be grateful to them for the, to this, grateful for them to this day because they taught me how to eat. They were very, very focused on body, food plans, and weighing and measuring their food, which at the time I needed because I didn't know how to have a meal. My meal started at when I woke up and they ended when I passed out. So it's, I needed to know how to put food on a plate and finish eating it and be done. Mm -hmm. um, but that mentality of this is what I'm eating, this is when I'm eating it, and this is how much I weigh stuck with me for a lot longer than served me. And so when I got down to a size two and stopped getting my period, um, I was over the moon. But I didn't understand mm -hmm. why I was there was this undercurrent of rage mm. all the time. It made no sense. I had everything now. I would walk through the streets of New York. I remember the day that I walked by a window in the Gap, 
and I saw a pair of red corduroy jeans, and I'm like, you're mine. And I went inside, and they said, oh, we only have one size left. It's a size two. I'm like, bring it on. And I wore them home, and I was like, the credits of my life can roll now. <laughs> Everything is perfect. We're good. Walking down the streets of New York with my coat and my sunglasses and my heeled boots and my red jeans, and everything's fine. And then I took my dog for a walk, and I yanked her leash so hard she hit her head on a car because I was so angry. So clearly the weight was not my problem. Clearly the food was not my problem. These bedevilments were my problem. So when we have this frame of reference, now we have something to talk about with step four. So now we're at the bottom of 63 and it says next we launched out. So next, next is a very particular word. They don't say, take your time with this. <laughs> you know, marinate on your relationship with your higher power. You've just turned your will and your life over. What does that mean to you? You know, take, take, take six months to write about that. They don't say that. They say next. Like, right now, get off your ass and do it. That's what they're saying. Because mm -hmm. um, we don't have time to waste. And they tell you this. You don't have time to waste. It is only a matter of time if you do not have a spiritual experience until you pick up your substance of choice again. Because we are powerless. We've established this already. And if we don't have a spiritual experience, that's where we're going to go. So if you don't want to mess around, then get on it. That's mm -hmm. what they're saying. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once, at once, guys, at once, similar to next, <laughs> followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. So they've just said it right here. Food, liquor, shopping, whatever it is, that's not our problem. That has been our solution. But the solution is no longer serving us. It's like you're taking a medication for something, but you're starting to take too much and it's poisoning you. You gotta come up with a plan B. Mm -hmm. So now they're talking about how we do step four. So we, a business that takes uh, no regular inventory usually goes broke. I mean, think about it at Target, right? They're constantly switching stuff up on the shelves. If they left the same thing there that they've had since 1998, they wouldn't be like the hugest store <laughs> chain in the world, you know? Our ob one object is disclosed damaged or unsalable goods. That means if this thing's not working for you, get rid of it. You need to acknowledge that it's there so you can get, if it's not selling, get rid of it. If it's not serving you anymore, acknowledge that and stop falling back on it and let's, let's move on. Um, it says, we did exactly the same things with our, thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. So this, for me, was sort of like, you know that emoji where like half the head is like popping off like this? <laughs> and it's like, this, myself was the cause of all of the problems in my life. And I was like, no, 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 no. The problems in my life or because of God, or because of my father, or because of my mother, or because I was fat, or because of this, 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 and this. It took me a really long time to realize that the way that I approached the world was the cause of my problems. And they talk about that in step three, how we've acted like the director in a play that we've been cast in. And I will tell you, that actually truly happened to me. I was in a play in high school, and I was one of the actors in the play, and they hired like a professional director to come in and direct this play. And I was like, no, 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 I got this. And like started giving notes to the other actors. Oh my and like, God bless them. I was so confident about it. They actually listened to me. But the one line 
um, if you look back on step, on, excuse me, on page 61, this line is my disease in a nutshell. If I only read this line ever, I'd be like, right. Uh, middle of the second paragraph, it says, this is basically like, if, if you manipulate to get what you want, it says what usually happens. The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. That right there is a mic drop. Still, the play does not suit him. Which means that I can manipulate my life to be exactly the way I want it to be, and something's still going to feel wrong in here. I still will not feel comfortable. Something's going to be off. And even when I had everything I wanted, I had a thin body, I was married, I had kids, I had all of those things I was told I was supposed to want, and I still dragged my husband around for five years moving from place to place because I was like, no, this place is going to be better. No, this place is going to be better. No, this place is going to be better because still the play did not suit me. I needed a spiritual solution because the home I was looking for, I needed to find in here. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is to clear out all the junk that we've hoarded in our homes for so long that are taking up space. So there are three things they say that, that have been blocking us. The first is resentment. So it says, resentment is the number one offender. This is page 64, bottom paragraph. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we have not only been mentally and physically ill, as, as we know, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We least listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. I remember when I said to an old sponsor, I just, I don't know what a principle is. And she said, yeah, because you don't have any. (laughs) (laughs) And she was right. Mm -hmm. My only principle was, how is this working for me? That was the only principle I had. We asked ourselves why we were angry. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relations, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. So if you look on page 65, they give you a very comprehensive example of what a resentment list looks like. Now, I know there are lots of people who have worked the fourth step in lots of different ways, as I have, but the way it's worked for me is by following the directions exactly as it's been in this book. This was how I had my spiritual experience. I did a lot of um, training for the Olympics, I like to call it, by doing a lot of like workbook stuff. And uh, at the time, I guess it was what I was ready for, but once I really did it the way it was outlined in this book, it was, that's what got me there. And so as... um, Rayanne mentioned, I am a writer, so I like to tell the whole story. If you'll notice, the the fourth step is very sparse. Um, You're telling, see for me, I can tell the whole story in a way where it's angled just right that I come out looking like the good guy. (laughs) Whereas here it's like, you read these resentments and it's like, you're a jerk, buddy. You know, there's no, there's no getting around the fact that somebody did something to me. I mean, look at Mr. Brown, right? Mr. Brown, I'm, I'm resentful at his attention to my wife, told my wife of my mistress, and Brown may get my job at the office. That asshole. He told my wife I was cheating on her. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Just that one right, right there. Next one. She snubbed me. She had her husband committed for drinking. My employer, he threatens to fire me for drinking and padding my expense account. What a jerk, right? (laughs) Ugh. My wife misunderstands and nags, wants to put the house in her name. So, you know, we can laugh at this because it's so obvious that the the common denominator in all these resentments is this person. But in my own life, I can't see that. 
I only see what other people have done to me. But here's the thing. If, I'm, if I acknowledge the fact that the problem really lies with me, that's hugely freeing. Because before, if I thought the problem lied, lay with everybody else, <laughs> then I was screwed because there's nothing I can do to change other people. Mm-hmm. If the problem lies with me, that's where I have control. That's where I can, I don't like to use the word control, but that's where I have room to maneuver. And I, have, I, ha- I can make choices. So here it talks about what it affects. It can affect my sex relations, self-esteem, fear. So a lot of people ask why the fear is in parentheses. Self-esteem is basically the idea that I'm trying to project about myself to myself and to other people. Um, although pride is also tied into that. Um, and there's this underlying fear that if I'm not that thing, I'll die. <coughs> so it can, my self-esteem, I need to preserve that at all costs by, by fear of death. Um, security, self-explanatory, personal relationships, and sex relations, and pocketbook, and ambitions. All of those things, anything we think is threatened can be summed up into all of those. So it says, so if, if you follow this pretty exactly, and my sponsor, an old sponsor said to me, the resentment itself should be eight words or less. Keep it into eight words or less for that reason. Because we're not telling a whole story here. There's no whole Megillah to tell here. You know, you just stick to the facts even if the facts don't make you look very good. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. A lot of us like to angle things so that, as I said, we come out looking good, assuming that if other people knew the truth, they would reject us or they would judge us. One of the most freeing things, which I'm sure Rayanne will talk about, is that when we come out and we tell the truth about the darkest parts of ourselves and other people say, yeah, I did that, there's something liberating about that. We, there's no more of that who's better, who's worse. We're all evened out on this human plane. So now we're gonna go down to page 65. It says, we went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. So the other thing I'm gonna tell you, there have been, uh, some people have misconstrued, in my opinion, misconstrued the sentence, we went back through our lives. You're not listing every single person you've ever met in your life to write about on your fourth step. It says, we listed the people against whom we were angry. If you have been angry against, uh, angry at this person, they go on the list. If it's like a kindergarten teacher who you didn't like so much, but there's nothing that made you angry about them, they don't need to be on the list. I made a big mistake the first time I ever wrote a fourth step out of the book where I listed anyone I could possibly think of who I might have had something, because I was so scared of doing it wrong, I wanted to earn like a PhD in a big book. <laughs> and it took me 10 months to write this, which it served me for sure, but I gave myself a lot more work than was necessary. So you just have to ask yourself, was I angry at this person? Even if you're not angry at them anymore. If at one point you were angry at them, they go on the list. If you weren't angry at them, they don't need to be on the list. Very simple. Um, When we were finished, we considered it carefully. And we're gonna go to the next page. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. This is a fact, people, okay? I am often wrong, but everybody out there is way worse. Okay, they're, they're just crazy. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of, us, most of any of us ever got. That is true. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore, which is a convenient cycle because if we're constantly going like this, we don't ever have to change. But if we keep ending up in the same place, eventually you hit yourself hard enough that you're willing to. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. I don't know about you, but like I can whip myself with the best of them. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. Still, the play does not suit him, right? 
as in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Um, and here I have a note that says, just like the food or just like the alcohol, it's short-lived, right? We have that moment of feeling that relief and then it goes away. These, these little emotional victories that we think we have over people, when we have a fight with someone and we win, right? We say the right thing and then we walk away. <laughs> yeah, we're, we, we won. We won the battle, but we didn't win the war. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness, which is so not fair because I want to be like, I want to be self-righteous. And I'll give you an example. There was one time. So my father, my mom died 10 years ago. My dad got married about 12 minutes later. And um, he married a woman who none of us like. And bless her heart, she chose my dad and they are together, but it was rough going in the beginning, very rough going. Um, my family had a summer house out in Cape Cod and she moved in and took down stuff from the walls and started putting up pictures of her family. And when we walked in, there were people on the walls that we didn't know. Mm. It's her house. She married my dad. Mm. This is like nine years after they got married that I can say that. The time it happened, I was like, bitch, let's take this outside, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I was ready to take off my earrings, take off my ring. Let's do this. Um, and so there was, and excuse my swearing, I can't help it. Um, it's a character defect I'm quasi working on, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and we got, in a, we got in an argument, and she grabbed my arm during the argument, right? I was gonna be like, this is assault, girl. Um, long story short, I called my sponsor and I gave her the whole story and can you believe and she did? And she's like, well, what did you do? And I was like, you are no longer my sponsor and I hung up on her. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I didn't do it. <laughs> um, no, so I, um, I acknowledged that I baited this woman. I wanted her to get in a fight with me so I could show my dad, see, see, see what she did to your kids? See how bad she is? You should divorce her. It didn't work. So um, I had to call this woman and apologize to her. And she said, I made my apology and she said, okay. And the conversation was over. She did not apologize to me. She, in that situation, I would say she was like 70 and I was 30, maybe 40, 60. And the point was, it didn't matter about her 60. It mattered about my 40. I had to own that, but I'll tell you something. That conversation was so uncomfortable that I have resolved never to say anything to her beyond small talk ever again because I never want to have a conversation like that. I never want to have to apologize to her ever again. And sometimes pride is useful. In this regard, it is very useful. But the point is, if I had not apologized to her, I would still be stewing in that. I'm not going to say I'm free of all my resentment about that situation. It sucks. It really sucks. But I don't have to give this woman real estate in my brain. My serenity and my peace of mind is not worth anyone, anyone ever. To the precise extent that we permit resentment, it says, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? So as we went back, if we go back to the third step, it talks about how we become God's agents. Um, I think if it's sort of like um, Get Smart, where they get their, or like Charlie's Angels, where like Charlie oh calls God. in on the, on the little speaker, and they're like, hey, Charlie. And he, he tells them, okay, you guys are going like here, here, and here. Go get the, go, you know, 
disrupt the bomb or whatever. And they go out looking all fabulous and doing their like thing. It's sort of, that's, that's, that's sort of my life, right? Like every morning I get the radio call from God saying, okay, here's your assignment today. And I go out looking fabulous and say, okay, let's do this. So if I'm worried, if I'm locked up in all of this stupidity and locked up in all the things that I'm not getting, I'm missing the call I'm getting from God. I'm, I cannot hear it because it's all with all the stuff that's going on up here. But with the alcoholic, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. Grave being like that thing you bury a body in, okay? That means we're talking about death. We found that it is fatal. Oh, fatal grave. Hmm, maybe we're talking about death here. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. So they're basically saying, do this or you're going to die. Like, it's, it's very, very, very simple. And for compulsive overeaters like me, my death is not one of those glamorous ones like Jim Morrison and, you know, trashing a penthouse in the St. Regis. It's like me getting an arm cut off because of diabetes or choking to death on a ham sandwich like Mama Cass. It's not cute. It's not like a cute, like, OD, you know? I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, there's, a, there's like a glamour factor to people ODing like River Phoenix outside of a club, you know? It's like Saturday night, oh, I, I died when I was going out. There's nothing cute about choking on a ham sandwich, okay? Like, in bed. It's true. It's not cute. So, and it's, and it, it's a long, drawn-out death. And for me, I will lower my standards as long as I can survive. Well, I mean, I only need one hand, right? I can do anything with one hand. I don't need to walk. I'll just use a wheelchair. There's like a whole like Paralympics. I could probably be in, a, I'll probably get like buff, you know? Like it, these are stories I can tell myself. I will lower my standards and eventually I'll die. But I will die way before my body gives out. I will be spiritually dead. And I know what that feels like because I've been there and it's horrible because I was too chicken to actually kill myself. So you're walking around like a, a living corpse. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> so if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. That's very simple. I, I hate that, but it's true. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. And the word brainstorm, like it has this connotation. And the connotation of brainstorm that we know now is an exchange of ideas, which was actually coined by Walt Disney. Um, oh. But it's not what this means. The brainstorm is like when you're in it, you know, you're stewing and you've got the, it's those conversations you have with yourself after the person goes away and you say all the things you would have said to them if you had had it in the moment. Like that's the brainstorm. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. So they're telling us we can't live like that anymore. We cannot live playing tit for tat with people tit for tat with ourselves. It doesn't work like that. If we're going to be living in freedom, then we can't get caught up in our own traps. So I'm going to quickly go through what they call the turnarounds, which is the next section of the resentments. So what they're saying is we turn back to the list where it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. The angle we always looked at it was you're wrong, I'm right, or I'm blameless. Whereas this time it's like you could be 99% wrong but what's my 1%? How, what role did I play in here? And even if someone is 100% wrong, if I hold on to the resentment against them, if I spend my life hating them, that's my part. Because mm. I know there's been a lot of um, 
there's been a, I've read a lot of articles of people who have trouble with the 12 steps, um, with this part of the 12 steps where they have to look at their part, particularly if they're victims of abuse or rape or something like that. There is no questioning that the person who abused you is 100% wrong. No question, this is not a debate, especially if you're too young to say anything. There's, there's no question. If someone rapes you, they're 100% wrong. You did not ask for it, you, you have no part in it, there's nothing, you were, it's not you. However, if 20 years down the road, you are still living your life in anger and, and rage and you're cut off from the sunlight because of how much you hate this person, that's on you. Nowhere, anywhere does anyone say that what they did was right. It is not right. No one should ever have to go through any experience like that, ever. But you are free to let them go whenever you're ready. <coughs> Hopefully sooner than later. That's what forgiveness is. Mm. Forgiveness is not condoning what someone else has done, but letting go of it and not carrying it around with you for the rest mm. of your life. It doesn't have to belong to you even if it happened to you. If anything, it can be fuel to help someone else. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us, and that's true. If, so, if something somebody else did makes me mad, then they're, they're controlling me. If I'm trying, and my mother, this is my mother's big book, by the way. My mom was in, in program, and she also worked the steps. Um, and so when she died, my dad gave me this, and so I use it. And um, one of the things she said in here is, I don't remember where she wrote it, but she says, if I'm trying to control someone else, they're, they're controlling me. And that's what it is. If I'm trying to control my life, my life is controlling me because I'm locked in this idea that I can control things. I can control other people. And if only they were like this, I would feel better. I've handed them control of my life. Because what if they don't do that? Then I'm screwed. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancy to real, had the power to actually kill, which we see because if we're locked in that and then we're going and using it over it, then we could die. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol, which we said we can't get rid of these things by ourselves. So this was our course. And so the directions here, this is what they're telling us. Before we embark on the turnarounds, we look at every person that we've had a resentment against and we pray for them. I hate that. <laughs> um, in fact, I told my aunt once, my aunt was really mad at me, mad at someone and she was you know, telling me about it. I'm like, why don't you pray for them? And she, like, she laughed so loud, I had to like, move the phone <laughs> away from my ear. And I'm like, right, normal people don't have to do that. Um, this was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. I, wouldn't, I would even remove the word perhaps because every human on this planet is spiritually sick, okay? Mm -hmm. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We have to look at all of these people with empathy, all of them, even if they are the 100% wrong. Somebody who abuses another person is likely a victim of abuse. And even if they weren't, the fact that they are, in, I imagine that they cannot be content, peaceful, happy people if they are abusing other people. Obviously, this is an extreme example. But there are plenty of people who even love us and hurt us. It could be because they want to protect us and they're going about it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. The point is, if we're dealing in a human relationship where there is pain, there's spiritual sickness involved <coughs> as well. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would, we would cheerfully grant a sick man. 
we say, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. And we say this about every person that we've written down before we go into the next part. Because we have to let go of the fact that this is somebody who's out to get us or somebody who tried to hurt us. This has to be, okay, this is somebody who was doing the best they could with the tools they have. Now where am I? Where do I fit into this puzzle? So it says, we refer to our list again. Oh, I'm sorry, before. It says, we avoid retaliation or argument. That's direction, by the way, for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, just P.S. Um, we wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. They drop these little, like, bombs in here, just very casually. Like, just, you know, you might not be, be able to help everyone, but just be kind and tolerant of everyone for the rest of your life. Okay, thanks, bye. You know, like, it's, but that's what it is. This isn't just, and my, my son says this to me all the time. All right, I say this to my kids, and now they say it back to me, so be careful what you say to your kids, because they will say it back to you. Uh -huh. um, you know, I say to them, you can apologize, but if you don't change your behavior, it doesn't count. Yeah. And so, you know, the other day I was losing it, because I was really exhausted, and my son said to me, you're just going to apologize later. And I was like, <laughs> well, now I'm not going to apologize, you know. <laughs> but no, it's true, you know. We, if we have been judgmental and rageful and, you know, everything, then the flip side of that is being kindly and tolerant of everyone, which is really hard sometimes. But that's, that's the direction from here on out. That's the Charlie's Angels assignment. Now you're gonna be kind and tolerant to everyone. So now we go back to our list. Putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, just in case you didn't know where I was going with this, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes where we were involved. So it says, where have we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? So these are the questions that we're going to answer. And if you work with a sponsor, they can help you with more specific questions related to each of those questions. But the idea here is that in each of these situations, we have been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Those are the four horsemen. They come in and they mess up everything. <laughs> Selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, or selfishness, and fear. Okay? Those are the ones. So the questions that follow will basically help you see where you were involved there. And like I said, there could even be a situation where someone said something terrible to you and you didn't say anything back. But maybe your part is, I should have told them I don't like being speak spoken to that way. I should have told them, this hurts me, please don't do that. But I never did. That can be a dishonesty. That can be a fear. I was afraid to say that. So there is always something in there that belongs to us. We just have to find out what it is and be open to seeing that. And the good news is it can be painful, but here's the thing that a, a sponsor said to me once, which I've said multiple, many times in a meeting, and I've been talking for a long time, so I'm gonna wrap up soon. Um, in the old days, olden days, before um, they had washers and dryers, people would wash things and hang them on the lines outside. And the sun would bleach mm. out patterns and like on sheets and stuff and so the sponsor said to me you know patterns fade in the sunlight patterns fade in the sunlight and so the more you put your patterns out into the sun they will fade because by the time I was done with my four step and I saw myself writing the same thing over and over again I wanted to divorce myself like I was <laughs> I was disgusted but that's good because that means we're willing to do something different mm -hmm. So here we talk about the word fear. Um, 
evil, it's an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. So basically, and I think this applies to me, everything I ever did was because I was afraid. Be it, usually I was afraid of dying. Somehow I could like work out a situation where I, this would end up with me dead in a gutter somewhere. I could be at ShopRite and somehow I'd be like killed in the dumpster in the back. I don't know, but like, and it says, we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Mm -hmm. This has, I have never quite 100% understood this statement, but I will say this. Fear does steal your life away. Absolutely. If you are not present for your life because you're, or you don't show up for things or you don't try things or you don't allow yourself things because you're afraid of what's going to happen, you are literally taking your life and stealing it away. And that's what fear does. So it says here, the reason we're afraid is because self-reliance failed us. What does that mean? It means that anytime I think I'm supposed to solve a problem, I know deep down I really can't because I'm not that powerful. We all know this inherently, but we, we tell ourselves the story that we are. And so when we know that our resources will eventually run out, it's terrifying. And so we flail around trying to do the best we can, and guess what? People get hurt in the meantime, including me. That's what it is. That's what it always comes down to. If I am relying on a power greater than myself to provide for me what I need, I don't have to be afraid of anything. And when fear comes up, I can just be like, hey, can you take this fear away? Because it's not working for me. It's really, it's two sides. I'm either relying on myself or I'm relying on a power greater than myself. And when I am afraid, I am relying on myself. It's that simple. Mm. So there, it says, perhaps there is a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. Remember the Charlie's Angels. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity. It's, it's, it's so simple and so different from the way that I ever lived my life. I just need to fix this thing. I need you to do this and you to do this and you to do this and then I'll be okay. Then that serenity that I'm looking for, I will have because you will all be doing what I want to. But if you do all those things and the play still doesn't suit me, then I have, a, I have a big problem. I have to rely on God to give me what I need and know that everything in my life is happening because it's supposed to happen and nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And if that's the case, then I do not need to be afraid of anything, ever. Mm. So it says, when we are afraid... We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. Not how he would have us feel, not how he would have us think, and not what he would have us do. How he would have us be. And 10 times out of 10, it says, we need to be trusting and relying. That's it. If I trust and rely, I don't have to do anything else. The right answers will come. And it says, at once we commence to outgrow fear. I like the word outgrow because it's sort of like a child outgrowing their clothes. Um, I'm constantly switching clothes out because my kids are growing, growing, growing. And it's like, this is a thing, this is a tool that I used as a child that I no longer need. I outgrow it. I don't need it anymore. I can pass it, I can pass it on and hopefully it just sort of disappears. Um, I'm going to also quickly touch on sex because I want Rayanne to have a chance to wow you guys. But in the, what it basically, not, not to set a, an expectation. I know, I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is this with sex. 
the people on your sex inventory are not only people you have had sex with. They're people with whom you have had a romantic or sexual or any kind of... Flirty. Flirty, any kind of engagement. It could literally be one conversation with the coworker in, in the in the staff kitchen, whatever. It doesn't matter. That goes on there. Um, because I know I've helped women who have only had sex with their husbands, but some, but they also ended up having 10 or 11 people on their list. It doesn't matter. It's anyone with whom you've had that kind of engagement. Um, that said, the question, it's not really about what happened. It's about what part you played in it. And the, when they say at the, and there are questions that you answer here, it says, we reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? So a lot of people, um, and I have also been tempted in the past, the answer to what should we have done instead? Well, just not been in that relationship. It's an answer, but it's not the only answer. Because you were in that relationship. It happened. So... What could you have done instead? Let's say this was a relationship that wasn't a healthy one. You were in it. So yeah, you got into it. So what could you have done instead? Maybe my behavior could have changed. Maybe I could have been kinder. Maybe I could have, you know, let them go earlier than I did. The point is we need to look at our behavior in this relationship. Like I said, it could be 99 and 1, but that 1 is yours. Even if that person was absolutely terrible, if you are still angry at them, that's on you. Um, and then we write a sane and sound sex ideal. Um, my sex ideal turned out to be nothing like my life because I am married with five kids and I work full time. So if my husband has sex, he is a very lucky man. Because, <laughs> so, because in general, I don't even have the bandwidth to think about sex these days. My sex ideal was like, you know, we're going to feel intimate and connected and we'll really, you know, just bear our souls to each other. Now I'm like, I'm going to freaking sleep. Good night. You know, it's, but that's okay. And at the same time, I also have to be open to what my husband needs. I was telling Rayanne last night, my husband gave me a talking to because he's like, I know you're busy. We're both tired. We're both working our asses off, but I'm here and I need something from you. So instead of preparing this morning, I had sex with my husband <laughs> because, because I knew that's what, well, whatever that I knew he had asked me for something and being part of a sane and sound sex ideal is not just making sure I have what I need. If he needs something, I need to show up for that and not just be hide behind. I'm tired. I'm doing so much. And Bo, if, if he came to me and says, I need you to take, go pick up the groceries, I'd go pick up the groceries. You, I need you to have sex with me. I'll have sex with you. You know, like it's, it can really be that simple. But that's being part of a relationship. You know, I'm not even joking. It's like yeah. if I lived in selfishness, I would say, I don't give a crap what you need. Look at how much I'm doing. And I will tell you sometimes I fall into that. But my sane and sound sex ideal now is I am part of a partnership where each person has needs that need to be met. So there it is. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge, which means gay, straight, trans, bi, whatever, you do you and just don't hurt anyone. It's really that simple. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Just chill out, it's just sex. It's, it's not the end of the world. So 
that's that. So now it says, if we have been thorough about our sexual, our personal inventory, excuse me, we've written down a lot. We've listed and analyzed our resentments. We've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. Hopefully, if you still don't, you might want to go back and do it again. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look upon them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. So now it says at the end of page 71, that being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. So I'm just going to quickly segue into step five and then give it over to Rayanne. So we have all this information, right? What are we supposed to do with it? We need to tell someone else about it. It says in step five, we need to tell God and another human being. So telling God, the truth is it's kind of redundant because God already knows. But you can tell, you should tell God because that way the channel's open, but you're not telling him any, you're not surprising God. God knew. God knew before it happened. Um, By telling another person, you are opening the door to true human empathy and freedom. Mm -hmm. Because as I said before, when you take, and well, I should say from my experience, when I have taken the dark things I have done, and I've done some dark things, and I've laid them on the table in front of another person, and they have said, you must have been in a lot of pain to do that. Or, oh yeah, I've done that. Or, God loves you anyway. That's, that's it. I no longer have to prove myself. I no longer have to earn my place on this planet. We are all people who have made mistakes in the past out of our fear, our res- all of these things, the four horsemen we talked about, we've all done terrible things. But we can also acknowledge them, make them right, and then help other people with them. Nice. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ms. Rayanne. Thank you, ma'am. Yep. You know, I'm going to stop it now because that would be a good stopping point for part one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good.